Chapter 13 of the Shakespeare Spy Syndrome. Despite my exhaustion, I spent a restless night. I woke well before dawn, and as I could not force myself back to sleep, I rose and lit a candle. Then, wrapping my blankets about me, I sat at the small table by my bed and took up my plumbago pencil determined to write something resembling a play, or at any rate enough to, uh, 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 any rate enough of one to make the lie I had told Judith seem more credible. It was more than just a matter of making good my boast, though. I wished desperately to do something that would impress her favorably. Heaven knew I have done little enough in that line thus far. I was very much afraid that if I remained in her eyes, her bright blue eyes, nothing more than Widge, the quaint apprentice, she would have little time for me. If, on the other hand, I were Widge, the quaint playwright, well, she had said herself that she was more will- than willing to spend time with me in order to hear my play. The main problem, as I saw it, was that I had no play, not even a ghost of an idea for one, nothing more than a title, in fact, and a rather stupid one at that, the ghost of an idea. Well, there was a possibility. The groundlings went wild over anything with a ghost in it, the only thing they relished more was undying popularity of the Spanish tragedy attested was revenge. Something about a ghost who demands revenge then, huh? What that wasn't exactly clear where the madmen of Gotham would fit in, but I could always tell Judith I had decided to change the title. After all, it was practice her father rootingly indulged in. All's well that ends well, for example, had become life as love's labors won. I could rebub mine something in order of a madman's revenge. I rolled the title on my tongue, the madman's revenge. That wasn't bad. In fact, it was quite good. Using my swift writing, I scribbled it down on the back of the broadsheet. I rubbed my hands together, partly in anticipation, partly to warm them up a bit. This was beginning to look less like a chore and more like a lot. All right, I had a ghost. Whose ghost was it then? Someone who had been fully and treacherously murdered, no doubt, since it was demanding revenge. For a prince, perhaps? Or a king? The penny, the penny play, payers like to see royalty up there on the stage, not dual ordinary whites like themselves. So let us say that this prince, or a king, if you will, is prisoned by some villain who covets the throne, 
Only the prince ghost, or kings, if you will, comes back all mangled and bloody. Let's have him hacked to death, then, instead of prisoned, and torments his brother, or his son, or someone, and I stopped scribbling. Wait a moment, I thought. This all sounds awfully familiar. It sounded, in fact, very much like Hamlet. Disgusted, I held the broadsheet over the candle flame and watched it burn. Then I snatched up another sheet of paper and smoothed it out before me. What else would the Stinkarts hope to see then? A rollicking comedy? Of course, full of puns and pathballs, misunderstandings and mistaking identities. But, though I knew next to nothing, about composing a play, I knew I knew enough to realize that the script were of the script of that sort would demand a wit keener than mine, even worse if would require an involved incarnate story. I was better off sticking with something simple and straight straightforward well that, or perhaps love. If there was anything that appealed to the general playgoer, as much as a tragic tale of murder and revenge, it was a tragic tale of star-crossed lovers. Again, it was best if they were royalty, or at least nobility. What made it in her right mind, after all, would waste her time pinning away after a cob crier or a rat catcher or an apprentice player. If a romance was to end tragically, there must be some obstacle, something to keep them apart. If they were both of noble birth, it could not be a difference in station, or could it? What if one of the lovers, the boy, let us say, discovers that the man and woman he believes to be his parents are, in fact, not? That re- What if they reveal him that he was a family whom they took and raised as their own? What if his true parents were, say, a coward and a milkmaid? I groaned. That, that was not tragic. I was merely pathetic. What about the other way round, though? The lovers are simple, country loves and groundlings might not mind that they always cheered the rustics in midsummer night dream and besides i knew far more about rustics than i did about royalty but then one of them the girl let's say discovers somehow that she's actually the daughter of a duke or or earl or something who gave her to this coward and this milk heart to raise and as sam was found saying much what reason it is the word would a duke or an earl have to hand his daughter over to a couple of poor peasants that way our audiences were often asked to accept the unlikely but were there 
were limits of to that one could ask of them. Then I was growing up in the orphanage, I imagine, as did most of my fellow orphans, I am certain, that I had been sent there by mistake, that someday my parents would play would come and claim me, and they would prove to be wealthy folk of high degree, or at least wealthy. But that was a child's dream, not the sort of thing that that ever actually occurred. The second sheet of paper went the the way of the first, though as the premise for a play it was hopeless, and at least it served to warm my hands a little. I took up the third sheet and stared at it. There was something intimidating, almost mocking about its blackness, as though it were daring me, daring me to fill the void with something of a consequence. I was tempted to burn it as well. This for spite. Instead, I pinned it roughly to the table with one hand. And, though, and with the other held my pencil poised over it. Now, what else might keep these hypocritical lovers apart? Money? Religion? When I met Jamie Redsaw, he told me a touching tale of how my mother's parents had forbidden her to have anything to do with him because they were Protestants and his family were Catholics. Catholics. Uh, though I now suspected that the whole thing had been a fabrication to ploy to win with my trust, at the time I had been utterly convinced by it. Might it not then co- convince an audience as well? I had a page nearly covered with scribbled notes, names, or characters, possible titles, The Mad Monk of Gotham. The Revenge of Rossery, thoughts on how I might work in the ghost of some sort before it ever occurred to me how foolish, even dangerous, it would be to compose a play in which one of the protagonists was a flagrant papist. I, as I sat watching, Yet another idea go up in smoke. The bells of St. Bennett, Bennett, directly across the river from us, began to ring, crying. I sprang to my feet and flung off the blankets. It was due at Cross Keys in half an hour. I pulled on my clothing as quickly as I could and sprinted downstairs. Before I had taken two bites of my porridge, Sam came to call me. As I hurried out the door, Goodwife Livingston snatched me by the cloak and thrust into my hand two thick slabs of bread with slices of cold beef packed between them. Overslept, did you? said Sam, casting an envious eye at the bread and beef. I broke it in two and handed half to him. Nay, as a matter of fact, I've been up for two hours. Doing what? he asked around the monstrous mouthful of food. I was not about to tell him what I had truly been up to. Then I would have two people pestering me 
me to look at my non-existent play, and very likely far more than that, for Sam was not known for keeping his tongue in his purse, as they say. No, so to avoid compounding the trouble my first lie had gotten me into, I forced to come up with a totally new one. Was there uh, no end to it? I was working on improving the character. Improving your character? I don't see that getting up a bit early is all that virtuous. Nay, nay, not me character, me charactery. You can, Miss Swift writing. Well, that was not altogether untrue. Dr. Bright's system was, to put it kindly, imperfect. Where there were times when I grew so frustrated with his shortcomings that I wore, swore I would devise my own set of symbols. One day I might even get around to it. When I was finished writing my play, perhaps, or at least, or last, the last llamas were whichever came first. At the start of each play, it was the job of us princesses to put the tearing room and the property room in order again. After the two hours of disorder, they had suffered the night before. One Sam, <coughs> and I arrived in the property room, so Polly was already hard at work. At least until he saw that it was only us and not one of the sharers who had entered, at which point he had reverted to his normal practice of doing as little as possible. Sam cast him a look of disgust. A moment later, as he was putting a leather breastplate into his, its proper trunk, Sam suddenly stood stock still his eyes squeezed shut as though in concentration. A hand collapsed to his forehead. I've just had a vision of the, of the future, he intoned in a voice very like Madame La Vision's. I predict, I predict that Sapovi is about to say, he switched to a wicked imitation of Salpalvi's rather nense of terror. At Blackfriars, we were not obliged to pick up properties. At what? It was Salpalvi's turn to express disgust. If I sounded rhythmically the way your parody of me sounds, I'd quit the stage at once and become a hermit. Promise? Sam said. Stop it, you two, I said. We've work to do. Sam picked up a rope ladder used by Valentine and two gentlemen and began winding it to a neat bundle. I mean, no offense, Sal, but if you had it so easy at Blackfriars, why didn't you stay there? I had a good idea what the reason was, for I had seen the stripes that decorated Sapovi's back. The result, I did not doubt, of frequent severe beatings. 
Saul, Sam had seen them too, but Sapolvi, for all his talk of the Blackfriars, had never talked of this. You may tell us, I said. We're all friends here. Sapolvi glanced warily at me, then at Sam. He's only making another jest of it. Not I, Sam vowed. Uh, I and drew a cross over his heart. Don't do that, Salpovi's tone was unexpectedly harsh. It puts me in mind of them. Who do you mean by them? I asked. Mr. Gills and Mr. Evans. I recognize the names. They're the whites in charge of the chapel children? Salpovi nodded. He looked at about fervently as if fearing that one of them might have infiltrated our theater. Then he heard, then he said, in a voice so low that I could scarcely hear him, we're also papists. So that was chapter 13. Bye guys, see you later. See you later, see you later, see you, see you later. Bye guys. Bye guys.